Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 17, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm the author of The Jesus Centered Life and just released today the book Spiritual Grit. I'm also editor of The Jesus Centered Bible. So today we kick off the release of Spiritual Grit by focusing on one of the central truths about all growing, deepening relationships. And this central truth is specifically true about our relationship with Jesus. And that is that Jesus encourages risk because risk is the lifeblood of all intimate relationships. And today I'm going to be joined by my friend Steph Hilberry. We like to have her on whenever we focus on something that's in one of her sweet spots, and this qualifies. So Steph, welcome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Glad to be back on the show. So uh, I just said that risk is a deeply good thing, and that's true from Jesus' perspective, but um, Steph and I have been talking about this, and wow, when you really think about it, we have such a complicated relationship with risk. Even though we're going to make the case today that Jesus um, not only valued risk, but he elevated it as one of the central and most important truths about our relationships with each other and with him, even though all that's true, we have a much more complex relationship with risk than than meets the eye. So let's before we kind of dive into that, let me give you just a little bit of context about the book Spiritual Grit that's releasing today. It's uh, It was a two-year journey to write it. Those of you who listen to this podcast um, regularly know that it was. It took every ounce of grit I had to just finish the thing, and something happened. I've written more than three dozen books, but something happened with this book that has never happened with another book. I finished the whole book on deadline, felt like it was the best book I'd ever written, turned it into my editor, Candace, and a week later, she somewhat sheepishly asked if she could meet with me. When she did, she basically lowered the boom and said, I think that the, the book has problems, and I, I'm used to that. I'm a creative work my whole life, and so if, uh, when you're in a creative work, things get changed. And so I said, no problem, and uh, what tweaks do we need, basically, is what I was saying. <laughs> she said, um, no, I think you need to start over. I think those were her exact words. Wah, wah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or maybe maybe we could put some nice, morose music behind me right now. <laughs> um, we need sound effects for the right. story. Yeah. So I, I first, it, you know, whenever you hit something that's unbelievable, you first don't believe it. Mm. You're like, uh, this can't be happening, and there must be some misunderstanding. And so the deeper I went into it, and I started asking other the few other people that had read up at least portions of the book, and and while they liked the book, they they kind of agreed with Candace's assessment, and so then the unbelievable reality began to settle in, and like a deep fog in a Sherlock Holmes movie, and I realized I'm going to have to start over, and I had no I had no conception of how I was going to do this. I thought it was impossible when I first started, and everyone told me to just take a break and um, start over again in a month or something, but I couldn't. I just couldn't. I, it was one of those things where I, I just couldn't let it go. I couldn't really sleep at night unless I got started again. So I, it's like a you know 
summiting Everest, coming back down, and somebody saying, oh, you know what? You climbed the wrong mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Your GPS must have been off. Everest is over there. So I started climbing Everest again. And and, um, uh, 13 versions of the book later, the final version... Uh, is is what's been being released today, and and uh, it's a book about, the, in some ways, about all of the research that's been done on grit, which is the passion and perseverance to run life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And why do some people have grit and others don't seem to? And what why is grit so important to life? All of the research that has been done on grit from a kind of a secular perspective has highlighted how important it is in the success of life, and, and you don't have to have natural strengths to have grit. In fact, natural strengths sometimes work against this, this strength of grit. And so when I realized that there was aspects of the secular research into grit that had gone unexplored, even though they were central to its power and truth, that's what sparked the idea for the book in the first place. And I, I realized a couple of things. One of the things was that central to the research into grit is that in order to have grit, you have to have a passion for something higher than yourself. But the researchers don't say much about that. It's like, well, find one. Mm -hmm. Find a passion that's higher than yourself. And I realized, well, the highest passion we can experience as human beings is a passion for God, a passion for Jesus. So that was light bulb number one. And the second one was the grit researchers said, basically, you know, we know how grit works, we know how important it is, we can measure it in people, we see the outcome of grit, we just don't know how to grow it in people. And I realized, oh, well, Jesus was growing grit in every single person he met. Like, there's not a person that Jesus interacted with where he wasn't intent on growing their core strength. And so that became the seeds of this book. And the basic structure of the book is a kind of the first chapter is a lead-in to, to cover the foundations of what spiritual grit is as different from grit. Spiritual grit is the grit we get when we're deeply, intimately attached to Jesus and we get what he has. And so it covers how do you develop a passion for something higher than yourself, and how, in general, do we grow in grit uh, according to the way Jesus modeled for us. And then the, the next six chapters all focus on one aspect of how Jesus uh, modeled growing grit in people. So there's six different ways that he interacted with people that helped to grow their spiritual grit, and each chapter focuses on a story that capsulizes that, that model, and then explores in very, very practical ways how uh, a menu of, of experience and experiment, how, how can we experiment with that way of growing grit in ourselves and others. So that's the basics of the book. comes out today. We'd love it if, if everyone listening to this podcast... How's this for bluntness? Go to Amazon <laughs> and buy the book uh, today, because the more people that do that this week, mm-hmm. the more Amazon sort of sits up like a dog and pays attention, starts wagging its tail, and their uh, the Amazon's algorithms help promote what's already getting attention, and so uh, you can be little micro missionaries, especially if you want more people to be captured by and ruined by the heart of Jesus. You can, you can be a micro-missionary and do a very simple thing, just buy the book on Amazon, and then once you've read the book, as soon as you've read it, post a review. Both of those things get noticed by Amazon, and Amazon in turn uh, helps other people, a wider array of people, get aware of this, this book. So I just encourage you to do that, uh, especially if you 
if you're a, a lover and a fan of this podcast, it, it would be a huge help if you, if you could put your oar in the water. We'd love it. So there's a little bit of the context for the release of the book today. Um, we don't have any pom-poms or flags to I wave. I feel like we should. We need some uh, jingles or something. You know what, though? Steph did wear her special book release hat today <laughs> that she has taken off because, you know— You can't wear a hat and headphones at can't. the same time. Well, you could, but it would look— it looks like you have uh, uh, like a buffer zone between your head <laughs> and your hat if you do that. So she's wearing her cool fedora. It's her sort of spring-summer fedora, I guess I would say. Yes, I have it's, multiple. It's not your winter fedora. No, that one's felt. Yeah, this one's more like a straw. Would you mm-hmm. call it straw? I would. Straw fedora. So she has switched. This is the official beginning of the start of summer, mm-hmm. really, because we can see summer over the horizon because Steph is wearing her <laughs> straw fedora today. <laughs> Though, again, not right now. So Steph and I were actually um, in the thick of winter. We went to this urban setting in downtown Loveland where our headquarters is. And we were we were going there to record a little video that uh, we're posting on all of the places where we're trying to point people to spiritual grit. And so uh, the idea was that uh, I wanted to do this outside in kind of a gritty place. And so we chose this uh, shaded alley in downtown uh, Loveland. Does Loveland really have a downtown? <laughs> let's let's use that term. It's a loosely. street. It's a street. It's a street. It wouldn't be accurate maybe <laughs> to call it an urban street either. Mm. But it, but it looked pretty grimy. So for an alley, it looked like an alley. It did. It, it looked it, like it, an alley. But it was like eight degrees outside. It was very. It was very cold. It was unbelievably. In fact, um, I've never had this happen before. But I had to obviously do multiple takes of this video because I'm walking while I'm talking and they're trying to get me. And then the equipment didn't work because it was so cold. And by the end of it, I, my mouth wouldn't work anymore. I had to kind of think, oh, open your mouth now, Rick. <laughs> it was frozen shut and my toes were frozen. It was a really cold day. But because we spent all this time down there in between, you know, taking takes of this video, Steph and I were talking and she, she were telling me about um, your college life, which... You have the most—I I, I have to say, I've never heard this story before, where somebody started college and stopped college twice. I, I'm like, what? How does that work? And maybe more people do this than I realize, but that's the first time I heard of it. So it struck me that, f- just from that story alone, that you have an interesting relationship with risk. So I thought I'd, uh, we'd start off by—I I just want to uh, have you talk a little bit about what went into that sure. at the time. So I was too, I'm, I'm too old for the gap year, but <laughs> I, I was an early, a forerunner of the gap year. Um, I went to school in a different state. So I, I was born and raised in Colorado and I chose a school in California and I went there for a year and um, I was attending, I went to a Christian school, I was attending a chapel and there was a gentleman there who gave a riveting presentation about uh, just being relationally missional. And I couldn't get it out of my mind. So I decided spontaneously that I would take a year off of school and I would go live in inner city Philadelphia when I was 19 and volunteer at a local high school and volunteer with one of the local church's youth groups in a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood, which was about as far off in the U.S. that you could get from my hometown here in Colorado. So it was it was ethnically different. It was urban instead of kind of the rural West. It was 
buzzing with life. There weren't any trees. There was no landscapes. It was just a completely different experience. Uh, I was there for a year. Then I came back to Colorado, and I went to school for another year. And then I decided yet again that I would, uh, I applied for a fellowship in Washington, D.C., and it was an academic internship. I was accepted, and so I went and did that and happened to be there right, I think we arrived maybe three weeks before 9-11. So I was in D.C. during 9-11 and um, was there for the whole following months leading through Christmas and came home and then kind of finished out college. I would say the conventional way, but I... Uh, met my husband and got married and then finished college. So the entire college experience was extremely unconventional. And um, my friends would joke around with me about, you know, what are you going to do now? You know, because I was always doing things like jotting, jetting off to some new place. But for me at that age, and I think even as an, uh, an older adult, I just was in love with the idea of doing things unconventionally and I loved, I did love risk. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk about this subject with you guys, because my spiritual DNA thrives when I'm taking a risky decision. And as an adult, I've taken risky decisions. I quit my job when I was in my mid twenties and decided I was going to learn, teach myself how to blog and be a digital marketer from scratch alone. I did that for several years. I I learned how to freelance. I learned how to run my own business. Um, My husband and I have definitely taken a lot of risks financially. Some have paid off, some have not. We, I think both of us kind of enjoy doing things that are outside of the norm. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along, but that's my gap year before they were cool story of living unconventionally. Yeah, and what's fun is you you listen to that in kind of in retrospect and you and we tend to gravitate to the risks that we took that that led to positive outcomes, you know, like mm. they're part of our adventure story now. They're part of your identity. This is how we know what we are like. So when you say I, I I'm drawn to the unconventional, that's self-knowledge. I'm the kind of person that likes to do things unconventionally, likes to change things up, likes to kind of disrupt the default settings of life. Mm-hmm. And that's just my bent. And this is ha- kind of, you do these things to kind of find out who you are in some some respects. So we talk about these things, and they, they have positive impact on our identity. But we do have a mixed bag mm-hmm. when it comes to risk. You kind of hinted at a little bit that you took some financial risks that have paid off and some that haven't. Mm-hmm. Some other sort of, I, let's, let's kind of do an overview now of some of the cultural uh, context for risk and where we see risk as a good thing and where it's not a good thing. One of the things that's a sort of a hot button for me, and I've written and spoken a lot about this, is our penchant today to replace hello and goodbye or how are you with be safe, be safe. I first started noticing this probably a decade ago or so, or eight years, a decade ago, when people started using that as sort of their common default setting for a greeting in social situations, or parents often use it with their kids, their especially their teenage kids. Be safe out there. Be safe. You hear radio hosts use this all the time as their closing kind of comment, and and it, I, over the course of a short amount of time, it really began to bug me, <laughs> and I and I realized the reason why is that message 
is fundamentally narcissistic in the sense that when you communicate be safe to your teenagers all the time, you're essentially communicating nothing in the world is more important than your life. And that's actually not true. There's lots of things that we will die for that are worth our life. But when we say be safe, we're, we're communicating, uh, A, it's a dangerous world out there, and I'm not quite sure what's going to happen today, so really be cautious. And one of the ways I deal with parents when I'm in a parent seminar situation with this is I'll ask parents, who are, who are some people that have changed the world for the good? And I always get you know, some of the same names, uh, Martin Luther King and Desmond Tutu and Mother Teresa, names like that. And I create this long list on a whiteboard in front of them, and then I stop and I ask them, how many of these people do you think live their life by the motto, be safe? And there's always this nervous laughter, and it's zero percentage of these people. And what we realize is that if you want to make a good impact in the world or have really any good thing happen in the world, you have to take risks. You can't live your life by the, by the motto, be safe. But in our culture, it's the ubiquitous advice that we get all the time, and I think it's undermining to the advance of the kingdom of God. So that's one cultural reality around risk. We're risk-averse when it comes to our kids, and, you know, obviously as parents, we want to be smart about how we—the setting that we have our kids in, and we don't want to expose them to unnecessary risks, but it's sort of been magnified to a a huge extent by this uh, addiction to telling our kids to be safe is the most important thing in life. Steph, you pointed out what risk is like in the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. world. You, you're an entrepreneur, so what was your relationship with risk in that? Risk is just um, one of the ultimate attributes for, the, I would say, the entrepreneurial culture. So whereas in parenting, safety is a really high value in um, entrepreneurism, risk is the thing that, I mean, that we celebrate people who take risk and succeed. We talk a lot about celebrating risk when it brings failure and overcoming failure and the the tool that failure is in people's lives. So it's a really different, it's a, a very different culture and one that just loves and thrives on people who kind of push themselves into outside of their comfort zone. Yeah, they, they actually, the, the level of risk taking vaults you into kind of heroic status mm-hmm. unless your risk implodes and dismantles your life because it all just doesn't work out. You know, I, we watch Shark Tank, the, mm. the show, because my 15-year-old daughter really loves that show. It's fascinating to listen to these people and the level of risk that they are bringing to the table with mm-hmm. these ideas. And it's so heartbreaking to see somebody who has obviously risked so much, but you know, like midway through their presentation, oh, nobody's going to invest mm-hmm. in this. It's just not a good idea. And you just feel for people that have gone all in with something that is just not going to work out. It's 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 heartbreaking. Well, and I do think that's an interesting factor of risk is when you see someone encounter them in their life and they are risking and you can tell, you immediately are drawn to them. There's a vulnerability that comes with risk. And I think that that vulnerability is something that Jesus feels toward us when we're risking with mm-hmm. him. It just naturally creates a bond that is strong almost immediately. And risk is very powerful that way. Yeah, and risk is kind of like catnip for us, too, because I think about the Olympics that just not Mm. too long ago were on, and why do we watch these sports that we never watch (laughs) any other time except the Olympics? I told my daughter, Emma, that, uh, you know, I I, honestly, I could do without the ice dancing. (laughs) I'm like every guy on the face of the earth. 
Um, <laughs> but I said I can't miss the downhill, the the downhill competition in skiing. And Emma said, "Why do you like that so much?" And I said, "Because you can die doing it. You're skiing at like 80, 85 miles an hour um, for about two minutes down a mountain, and it's it's not out of the realm of possibility at all that you can die doing this sport. So I'm fixed to it because of the level of risk. The higher level the risk in the Olympics, the more I'm interested in that sport. And you mentioned even um, freestyle skiing has grown in popularity. Well, and all, all the snowboarding." Yeah. You know, when I was a kid watching the Winter Olympics, it was all about uh, the ice skating because I think that was one of the it events. Was the that was, thing. It was the most, yeah, attractive event. And now I really think snowboarding's dominating because there's such a higher level of risk involved with it. And we we are we're just we're attracted moth to a flame to risky behavior. What's interesting too is that uh, we're we're going to make the case here that risk risk taking is is vital to healthy intimate relationships, but a certain kind of risk in relationship destroys them. I mean, we how could we've had more examples of stupid risks in relationships shoved in our face mm-hmm. in the last year than I can ever remember mm-hmm. with people in power, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Kevin Spacey or any number of political leaders. I just listened to a story today about the governor of Missouri, um, and under he's under great duress because he's been accused of horrible sexual assault and he's denying it so it's an alleged assault but it, once again this is this these terrible stupid you know addictive risks that people take in their relationships that absolutely destroy them we're surrounded by that even though we know that in order to have an intimate relationship with someone you have to risk mm-hmm. because you can't have intimacy without vulnerability so you, you get these two two sides of the coin you told me a story before, Steph, about uh, your first date with your future husband. Why don't you tell that story again? I thought that was an interesting study in risk. Sure. So I am in my early 20s, and my husband and I met at work, and um, he asked me out, and our first date was to get, you know, go to a pub after work, and we were chit-chatting. And, you know, there's there's a rule about first dates, which is that you avoid the topics of, I think it's what, family, religion, and politics. Don't go there on your first date. And for some reason, I'm a pretty reserved person. I don't tend to kind of show strangers all my cards all at once. And certainly at this point in my life, my husband was a stranger. So it was very out of character for me to do what I did, which was about halfway through the conversation. And I don't even remember what was spoken before or even what was really said after. But for some reason, I found myself almost in an alien invasion sort of way, blurting out, just so you know, I'm a Jesus freak. I would never say that (laughs) to anyone, but I felt immediately in his presence like this was a person I could risk with and that I could take a chance. It was an intuition. I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit. I drove away from that date thinking, well, that was nice. I will never see that. He will never ask me out again. I mean, of course I'll see him, but that was our first and last date. Um, 
and he didn't respond negatively, but that's just, you know, spiritually, he, he wasn't in the same place as me. And I just thought, well, what a wonderful conversation and a way for me to share my faith with someone who I will never <laughs> date again. Um, and, you know, obviously, I, he's my husband. So we ended up getting married. But I think for me, that was one of the first signs that maybe there was something to this relationship was because right out of the gate, I knew that I could take unconventional risk with him. That's really good. And that's been a hallmark for us. It just reminds me that... Um, so I think I've mentioned this in past episodes that my wife, Bev, and I were engaged three times. So I don't know if I've ever promised to tell you the stories <laughs> of the first two engagements and what, but uh, I've never heard somebody's story like my story either of just, you know, absolute destruction and then starting over and absolute destruction and starting over. But I think it was after the first broken engagement, I felt pretty strongly, or maybe it was, it was after the second broken engagement that I felt strongly like... You know what? Maybe maybe the problem is me simply here. Uh, that that I need to move on. Uh, maybe I need to stop sort of pining away and feeling convinced that that Bev was the the one for me. Maybe I need to do a really hard thing and just move away from this relationship and leave it behind. And I thought the best way for me to do that is to actually start going out with other people. So. There was this girl at work who uh, I was good friends with, and I could tell that she had wanted to get uh, have a closer relationship, but I always avoided that. Well, when, after this second uh, engagement broke off, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask her out. And I didn't really know that much about her. She was kind of shy, but she was a, a deep thinker, and we had good conversations. And so we went out to this restaurant, and I just did what I always do. At, at I ask a lot of questions, and I'm very vulnerable about my own story, and I just was myself at this restaurant, and she looked like Boulder had <laughs> rolled over her in that restaurant booth. She looked flattened by me, and by the end, she had, she was almost completely quiet because it, I had just overwhelmed her with my questions and and wanting to know more about her. And when I went to go drop her off, she got out of the car quickly. And I thought, I remember thinking at the curb, she's going into her house that she li- where she lives with a roommate, and I could not imagine what she was about to tell her roommate. It just made me cringe inside. I thought, oh, that was such a disaster. But it, it, I didn't know how much I was risking until I saw the impact of it in in her life, and I realized I was sort of acclimated to my relationship with Bev, where everything that who I was was not too much for her. Um, In fact, she wanted more of me, not less of me. And with this girl, I was just way too much. And sometimes risks in relationship like that, they just, they, they impede your ability to even be in relationship, or they show you, like in your case, Steph, whether this is a person you can really have a, a deeper relationship with or not. And yeah, I kind of knew that I couldn't with that girl. <laughs> so, you know, the other thing that we've talked about is that the older you get, the harder it is to deal with risk or to take risks that really are good risks to take because you've got simply more on the line. I mean, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense the older you get in a career, for instance. Uh, I have a, a friend who's, uh, you know, probably five years away from retirement, and your calculation is different. When you get five years away from retirement, I mean, you might have be having a really hard time at work sometimes, which he is, 
But instead of thinking, you know, I'm, I think I might leave here and go somewhere else and, and find a new job, when you're five years away from retirement, it changes that calculation. You start to think, well, maybe I just need to last it out until mm-hmm. retirement time. So our relationship with risk changes the older we get. We tend to make uh, and feel free to make more risks when we're young in our 20s than, than we would later on. I, I another friend who told me his nephew was staying with him, who's a a youth worker in the Catholic Church, and he oversees all of these missionaries all over the world. And But he lives at a camp, in like a camp cabin, and he travels to Africa and South America, but he has zero money, and he's traveling all over the world, and he's he's not er, uh, really earning any savings, and is this really a career? And he's living with roommates still in his mid-20s, and it's like, well, that's the sort of thing you can do when you're in your 20s, but... I don't think he'll be doing this when he's in his 30s or 40s, though, mm-hmm. because the risk just doesn't make sense the older you get. So, And you you mentioned, Steph, that risk actually, because of this dynamic that we, we are less apt to risk as we get older, that that makes it even more important. Maybe I think could, so. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that um, that's one of the reasons why this chapter in Spiritual Grid on risk um, is so, I think... Uh, inspiring to read, challenging to read, and why risk is, or is a component of grit is because you get older and you get set in your ways, and risk changes us. It transforms us. It's a very powerful tool for that that Jesus uses to transform us. And as you get older, transformation is harder. But I think maybe even more valuable because it's harder. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I want to encourage you to get a copy of the book, read the chapter on risk, read through the points and the discussion questions, and just go to the Holy Spirit and ask, am I, am I risk averse uh, in a way that's holding me back? Are you maybe offering me opportunity to take more risks, maybe at a time in my life when risk is hard, uh, maybe when maybe I don't risk as much as I used to? And is there a, a way for me to be a little bit riskier in my life that might transform me uh, in the power of the Spirit? Yeah, you, I wrote down something you said yesterday because I thought it was so profound. You said, if you're not outside of your comfort zone, then you're not going to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just fundamental. And and uh, uh, we were having a conversation early this morning in a breakfast meeting I was a part of where we were sort of exploring how and why Jesus introduced hardship into people's lives. And at the very end of the conversation, one of the people in the conversation said, I think Jesus introduced hardship into people's lives, basically creating risk Mm -hmm. in people's lives, because he knew that entropy leads to death. And I said, why don't you explain to everybody what entropy means um, so we're all on the same page here? And he basically said entropy is, is where something spirals into a rut, and settles it there, and it doesn't move anymore. Entropy, some people say the universe is heading toward entropy, where it's slowing down, and it will slow down to a stop. And what he was saying is that Jesus understood that entropy produces death, and therefore he upset the apple cart with everybody he met because he was interested in life. He wanted people to experience life. So he was disruptive in order to create life. And so he definitely moved people outside of their comfort zone, but the purpose of that was to bring life to them, even though in the midst of it, it can often feel like death. Like, we don't want our apple cart upset, actually. It feels like death in the moment, but actually what he's doing is loving us in the future, not 
He's loving us in the present with an eye to the future, uh, that life is what this is all really all about. So because we know, I, I, you know, I love the Oprah question that I, I have, a, I, I have a, I think, a whole chapter in the Jesus-Centered Life about the Oprah question. And the Oprah question is my kind of version of a question Oprah asks her celebrity guests. She always asks them, what's one thing you know for sure? And uh, my version of the Oprah question is, what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus? Usually based only on this one thing you're looking at right now. It's a way to unlock truths about Jesus that we skip over. So one thing I think we know for sure about Jesus is that he emphasized risk. So I'd like to read you the story that sets the stage in uh, chapter 2 of Spiritual Grit, which is uh, chapter 2 is called Chasing Risk in a Culture of Safety. I'd like to read the story that I've referenced before on the podcast before. It's, it's actually my favorite story in all of the Bible, so I can't help referencing it. But we're going to reference it one more time and look at this story through the prism of risk. So I'm going to read through the story, and then Steph and I will talk about where risk shows up in this encounter. Uh, in, in the Jesus-centered Bible, th- this section of Matthew chapter 15 is titled, The Faith of a Gentile Woman. So here we go. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely.' But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. "'Tell her to go away,' they said. "'She's bothering us with all of her begging.' Then Jesus said to the woman, "'I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel.' But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, "'Lord, help me!' Jesus responded, "'It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs.'" Oh, wow, this is like, what a moment that is. So she replied, this is just extraordinary, I think, what she says in response to this. "'That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table.'" And Jesus changes completely. "'Dear woman,' he said to her, your faith is, is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. There's some interesting, just a little brief context to this story, some interesting context to this, that this woman was a pagan. She was born in this coastal city of Phoenicia, and she was culturally forbidden to initiate contact with a Jewish man, let alone a religious leader like this she already has three strikes against her, actually, in this encounter. She's a woman, she's a pagan, and she's a nuisance. <laughs> she's, she's got three strikes against her, and really, she ignores those umpires in this, in this story. There's so many um, embedded, interesting aspects of this story, like why would the disciples not even care about this woman's need? I mean, well, they're, they're basically conditioned to not even pay attention to a person like this. They're beneath, she's beneath them to pay attention, and they've been conditioned by this culturally their whole lives. So when, they, when Jesus says, um, I, I've come for the children of Israel, not for dogs like you, to the disciples, that's like, well, that's, that's the norm. We hear this every day. And to the woman, this was a very common response. She was doing something she shouldn't do, so she should expect to hear this kind of response, because that's what you would expect to hear in this situation. So it makes Jesus's uh, celebration over this woman at the end a shocking thing, I think, to the disciples. In fact, 
uh, what Jesus is doing is he's framing this woman as, as a model. Like, look at the faith she has, you guys. This is what I'm talking about right here, this kind of faith. So he's using a pagan woman who's been a nuisance as a model for faith to the disciples. It must have just been shocking. So let's talk about this story a little bit, about all of the ways we see risk being lived out by the woman and risk being lived out by Jesus. So what, what popped into your head as I was reading that? This story, for me, there's really one key point that I think about regarding risk, which is the risk Jesus is willing to take with her. Mm -hmm. And I think that it jumps out to me because I see him do this in the lives of people that I love, and it is uncomfortable. He, obviously with this woman, he pushed her. He could have pushed her away. The first comment out of his mouth could have pushed her away. The second comment out of his mouth could have pushed her away. And she could have been pushed away forever and been lost forever. And we know this is true because he did something similar with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said, hey, I've done all these mm -hmm. things. What else do I need to do for eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, what about this and this? Oh, yeah, I've done those things. Well, how about if you sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and follow me? So he takes another risk with the rich young ruler, and in this case— the rich young ruler takes off, mm -hmm. leaves. The very same thing could have happened in this story, right? Yeah. And I have love-hate feelings about this quality of Jesus because I see him taking risks with people that I love. And I see the circumstances in their lives. I see prayers that they pray that are going unanswered. I see things that they want that are being, you know, denied. And I think, wow, that's an awfully big risk because I can see the spiritual impact of it. And maybe you have people in your life who are going through hard things and it's challenging their faith. And maybe they're even losing faith. They're they're struggling with their relationship with God. They're questioning, why would God do this? And it seems awfully risky yeah. for some of these circumstances as they unfold in people's lives. And as a, a loved one, it's so hard to watch because you just think, I wouldn't take this risk that you're taking God with this person. I wouldn't do that. Um, and that's where trust comes in. Um, and I think that there's a redemptive story with this Canaanite woman, and I'm glad for that. And I hope for a redemptive story for the risks he's taking with loved ones. But that's, for me, the thing that stands out. Yeah, and, and what I think about when you're talking about this is it's such a, with such laser focus, I think about this. Jesus came to set captives free. That is his 24-7 occupation. Uh, it's a simple phrase, setting captives free, but the leverage it takes to set a human being free from their brokenness, from their sin, is enormous. And you start to get the, the, the reason behind the risk, mm. the weight behind the risk, is necessary to leverage freedom sometimes. I was talking to my daughter Lucy last night, who's at college, and she's taking an honors course where they're the, this whole semester, they've been focusing on immigrants and people who've been marginalized throughout history, and they've watched a lot of films. They watched uh, Hotel Rwanda, for instance. She watched a film, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, a foreign film about, about the Holocaust, and she had just watched it yesterday, and it was a shattering experience for her because this film was apparently incredibly graphic about the experience a young boy has who gets captured and sent to a concentration camp during World War II and what he experiences while he's there. And the experience of watching this in its raw form was just so shattering for her. And one of the things she said about this is she said, you know, because I often mention that my least favorite song in the universe is the song Imagine by John Lennon, because the lyrics essentially say, hey, what if we all just decided to get along? 
what if we we don't really need religion or any of this kind of stuff? Let's just all be nice to each other. That's essentially the message of the song, and the reason I don't like it is because people aren't naturally, in a default way, nice to each other. And that's what Lucy brought up in this conversation. She's like, wow, when you see what people can do to each other, it's just so huge. Mm-hmm. It's You can't imagine that this happened with millions and millions of people. And I said to her, yeah, the reason we don't understand God's behavior sometimes is we don't understand what he's up against. This broken humanity that defaults toward evil at times and is in great need of redemption and freedom, it's going to take heavy weight to set a broken humanity free. And that helps us to understand sometimes what what Jesus does. And you mentioned a great risk that Jesus took in this encounter. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the risks the woman takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the first thing that pops into your head when you think about the risk the woman takes? Well, just her boldness. I mean, she's, she's risking being socially chastised. Uh, she could be risking bodily harm. I mean, I, I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. She's certainly risking being shamed. Uh, she's risking rejection because he says no, not once, but twice. Um, but she perseveres. She really does demonstrate grittiness, and uh, she's an amazing, I think, model for us to look at life through. And I think about in this encounter, I just imagine it happening in that moment, that awkward moment after Jesus names her for what she's used to being named by, which goes to your thing about, wow, what a uncomfortable, mm-hmm. hard risk Jesus took in naming her the way she's used to being named, that he's trying to surface something in this woman in this moment, and gloriously she rises to the bait. And she, I just imagine this moment where this woman who's used to being marginalized and spit on, and, and you're not even a person, and I just imagine her jutting her chin out a little bit, her eyes a little bit fiery, saying, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the master's table. I think not just her words, but her presence in that moment was what Jesus absolutely loved mm-hmm. and saw himself in, that that kind of stance yes, but, and then proclaiming a truth and saying, I'm not letting you go here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I not giving up that easily, Jesus. It's the I'm not giving up easily part that Jesus just absolutely celebrated and was really the essence of faith. The faith is belief, her belief that Jesus could do what she needed to have done, or she would never have approached him and risked all that she did. She had seen enough, heard enough of Jesus to know that he could fix her daughter's problem. He could get rid of that demon with nothing. So she refused to leave until she convinced him to do it. And it's that kind of response that I think unlocks something in Jesus, sort of like wonder. He's almost in mid-delight over his creation when someone like this woman responds in this way. Anything else you can think about relative to the woman and her risks, Steph, before we move on? No, I think that that's um, kind of a good summation of it. She was remarkable. It's good. So um, in the in the book, Spiritual Grit, in this chapter on risk, there's, uh, a- after I kind of set up a little bit about the the nature of risk and uh, the, 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 our cultural relationship with risk and how much Jesus emphasizes risk in relationship, I, I have six sections in that chapter that kind of target risks that happen in this story with this woman that 
are models for us in our everyday life. So it's sort of a, a collection of practical experiments in taking risks in our life so that we can grow in the kind of grit that Jesus is trying to create in us. So I thought it'd be good for Steph and I to take a look at those, and we're, we're not going to go through all six of them. We're just mm-hmm. going to bounce around to the ones mm-hmm. that we feel like we have a resonance with or we have a story in our life with that would kind of unlock it. And one of the first one is take the risk to go where you don't belong, which is what this woman did. Mm-hmm. Ask what you shouldn't ask. Yep, she asked what she shouldn't ask. Invest what you can't afford to lose. So her, her daughter's life is on the line. If she screws up here, if she gets in trouble, what's going to happen to her daughter then? What if she gets dragged away from this encounter because it's so inappropriate? Now she's left her daughter, who's demonically possessed, to fend for herself. She had a lot on the line. So, And the last one is to give what you're not supposed to give. So that's a kind of a good little uh, umbrella for this woman's risk-taking behavior. Risk to go where you don't belong, ask what you shouldn't ask, invest what you can't afford to lose, and give what you're not supposed to give. And in the book, I tell this little story of something that just captured me when it happened. I was at the Simply Jesus Gathering last summer, which we'll put a link to the Simply Jesus Gathering on our podcast page. If, for those of you who would like to go hang out for a weekend with Jesus-loving people where the only focus is on Jesus and exploring Him more deeply with remarkable speakers from around the world and a really close-knit community of 400 or so people, this is the place to go. It's held on a ranch in the, in the wilds of Colorado. And some of the people who are on our pigs page, our special Facebook page for people who are fans of this podcast, some of the pigs on the pigs page showed up last year, and we had a little reunion, which was great. So we'll put a link to this. But this happened last year at the Simply Jesus gathering, where there was a worship time, and there's 400 people under this sort of open-air enclosure, and you can see mountains all around you, and there's a worship band up there on the stage. And, and because it's open air and there's no walls on this thing, you can walk right out to the outside, no matter where you don't have to go through a door. And while the worship band was playing, I noticed uh, midway through the first song, there was a woman who was not a part of the worship band who was playing her flute just outside the enclosure. She was sort of walking up and down, and she was accompanying the worship band with her flute. And you would think, oh, this could really be annoying. <laughs> this person just, who's not a part of the band, just picks up her instrument and starts playing with them. But it was the opposite of annoying. It was beautiful. What she was doing was complimenting the worship band on stage. It drew me in so much, mostly because of the risk she was taking. I thought, would I ever do that? Would I ever pick up my musical instrument and play along with the band? I, I just was transfixed by her courage and by the beauty that resulted from it. So after the worship time was over, I saw her walk past me, and I stopped her, and I just said, you know, what you did was beautiful. It really drew me into a deeper place of worship just watching you do what you did. And she kind of was all sheepish. She said, well, I did ask their permission if I could do it beforehand. And uh, I said, oh, I understand. It doesn't matter. What you did was beautiful. So to me, she was a picture of you know, going where you, quote-unquote, don't belong and giving what you're not supposed to give. It was an act of great risk that actually drew me into worship. So that's an example of what what it might be like for you in your everyday life. Is there some place in your life where you feel like, well, I'm not really qualified, or I don't have permission, or I'm not one of the chosen, or I'm not in the inside group? 
So therefore, I shouldn't give what I have to give because I'm not on the inside. A risk would be led by the Spirit of Jesus to give what you have to give anyway, even though there's all of this arrayed against you, to give what you know is needed anyway, even though you don't have the official trappings to, to, to give it. But give it anyway. Uh, I was just talking with somebody today, you know, when, like, my wife just had surgery uh, um, last week, and the biggest help so far has been not people who've uh, called us to see what we need, but people who've just said, I'm coming on Wednesday. I'm going to bring a meal, and I'm going to hang out with Bev while you're away. It's the people that risk, even when they're uninvited, to go meet the need, uh, even even before they're asked, that is so powerful when you're in a, in a situation of need. So, Steph, of the other five mm-hmm. here, um, which one of these kind of sticks out to you that you think about in your own life? Sure, there was one, and, and actually I'm going to share a story from someone else, not my own life, but as I was reading through these six, I do want to just, a quick side note, um, I think these six things, this second part of this chapter is really valuable. What I want to encourage is for you to get a copy of the book, go through them, and ask the Holy Spirit as you read each one, is there an area of these that I should try? Uh, Like I said, risk is hard to do. Uh, The older you get, it gets harder. And so I think this is a really good, it's not a checklist. It's not do every one of these things, but I do think it's a good list to say, hmm, maybe I'm not risking at all, or maybe I'm only risking a little. So the one I wanted to share a quick story about, because we're we're approaching an hour here, is the the fourth one is to take the risk to embrace your God-given identity in the face of threats and lies. And I recently joined um, a fitness community. It's in uh, kind of nationwide. There are thousands and thousands of predominantly women that participate in it. And there's this one girl that has just really kind of She's just shining so brightly in this community. And partly that is because a year ago, she uh, weighed 400, over 400 pounds, and she's lost over 130 pounds in the last year, which is a remarkable feat in and of itself. But I think it's her inner spirit that really testifies to her grittiness. And um, she's constantly having to take risks. She had to take a risk just to even start her journey of becoming healthier and more confident. Um, And she talks about this very transparently, but here's the ways that she risks in this specific way. Not only is she countering this identity that, um, you know, that she's, she's, and she still has, she has people leaving comments that, that say that she's, they call her a fatty still. She has, encounters in stores where passersby will make comments, maybe not directed to her, but just, you know, in the plus size clothing section. And they'll say something like, oh, I hope I never have to wear those clothes. You know, meanwhile, she's celebrating the fact that she's wearing sizes that she hasn't fit into in a long time. And she triumphs over these moments because she's choosing to believe a different identity about herself. She welcomes the challenge and the hard things that she's going through because they're revealing the person that she is inside. And she is extremely vulnerable, which I think is a part of risk. She shares very candidly about the things she struggles with. She shares when she's having a bad moment and she's tempted to kind of relapse into binge eating. She shares comments that people make that are are hurtful and her response to them. So to me, she's a a living story of risk and grittiness. Um, She really talks a lot about how God strengthens her through this journey. And so I, I think that, you know, 
our physical appearance is a, a area of identity that a lot of us can wrestle with. And it's a great, great area to experience some perseverance and grit. So, and I think about the the Gentile woman that going back to her again, um, that she she risked in the face of identity deconstructing comments to her. Mm-hmm. It was a very toxic environment for her, and yet she leaned in anyway. She was determined to not allow those things to stop her, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I hear in your story too. And you know, to kind of close off, one of the other one of the other points made in here is take the risk to move toward Jesus when he doesn't seem to care. So have you had moments where it just seems like the your life circumstances are telling you the story that Jesus must not care? Like the disciples on the boat who were in the midst of a storm and Jesus was asleep in the back and they were about to drown and they go back and to wake him up and say, don't you even care that we're about to drown? That's our mantra sometimes too. Don't you care? Look what's happening to us. So what happens when we're in those moments where it doesn't appear that Jesus cares, and our narrative inside says he must not care or I wouldn't be going through this, it's in those moments one of the greatest risks we can take in life is to draw near to him instead of retreat from him. This has been a great challenge in my own life to recognize when I'm confused, disillusioned, upset, maybe even angry at Jesus for what's going on in my life— do I retreat from him? Do I go back into my shell and say, I'm going to do this myself then? If you're not going to care, I'll take care of it. Or do I lean into him? And I think the pattern in our life that we can move toward, slowly move toward, which, it, which invests great risk, is to lean into him instead of away from him when he doesn't seem to care. For me, that means that I go back to the Gospels, and instead of running away from him, I reacquaint myself with the Jesus of the Gospels and remember why I love him in the first place. Or I, I might go somewhere alone where I can just cry for a while and pour out my heart and tell him what I'm angry about and upset about. That's leaning into him instead of away from him. So I, I, I guess I want to encourage you, if you're in that place and everything in you says to shut down and go back into your shell, what would it look like for you to lean into him instead? to be vulnerable toward the one who you think doesn't care? Uh, What would it look like for you to be real about the place that you're in, and like a child, reach out to him, to trust trust in his goodness, even though you can't see it in the moment? It's that trusting in the goodness when you can't see it that is such a powerful thing. It's, It's a blow for the kingdom of God and against the kingdom of darkness when the children of God do that. When everything's arrayed against them, and they love God anyway. This is really the story of Job. When Job had everything against him, and in the end he said, uh, I, I knew about you, but now I know you, and I see who you are, and I'm drawn to you. It's that that was striking a blow against the kingdom of darkness. So, so if that's you, I just want to encourage you today to, to lean into him instead of away from him. So, uh, that's our little uh, celebration kickoff for Spiritual Grit. Uh, Steph said we'd love it if you'd go out and, and check it out and tell your friends about it. Um, if you go to JesusCenteredLife.com or go, go to our podcast page, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, you'll find some uh, links and some resources even. Uh, we have some memes that we've given out to folks who are on our book launch team that if you want to share this on social media, you can. So we'll try to put links on there for you if you would like to do the same. 
And we're just grateful that you're part of this community. We're grateful that somehow there's a kindred spirit here amongst those who are drawn to this podcast and drawn to this community. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same without you, so thank you. And thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information about everything I've talked about on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You just need to find our podcast section there, and this one that you're listening to today is Season 3, Episode 17. And by the way, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes and any place you normally get your podcasts. You can subscribe to us so you can make sure you get all the latest ones. Hey, gang, we'll talk to you again next week.